This is Sam. This is Paul. And this is Southpaw. To our listeners, if you really love the show and love all the weird stuff that we're doing and want to do the badass thing of supporting the show, you can find us on Patreon. It's a way to support the show in monthly intervals. You can find us at patreon.com slash southpawpod. I'll also include a link in the show notes. So today on the podcast, we have Christian Fagan. And he kind of has an interesting story, and I think it is analogous for a lot of young people, and especially the 50 listeners we have, of the what I call the BJJ millennial struggle. Times are tough right now. We're recording out of Los Angeles, and Christian, you're not from Los Angeles. No, I grew up in, in New England and Massachusetts. So let's start from there. So you were a wrestler. That part I already know. So when did that start for you? Uh, I started wrestling in high school, actually. So like in real like wrestling hotbed places like Pennsylvania or Iowa or Ohio or somewhere like that, kids start from a pretty young age, but we don't really have like a really good youth wrestling sort of system or program in New England. And my high school didn't even like have a wrestling team until I got there, but it was something that I've been interested in doing since I was like a little kid. I grew up as like a huge pro wrestling fan. And so uh, that was just something I had always wanted to do. And then it was kind of just like a, really serendipitous thing where like it, it picked up uh my my high school wrestling coach that got hired as a teacher at my high school my freshman year of high school and and he kind of got the program running and stuff like that and um yeah i just i just fell in love with it um before i started wrestling i like i mean i, I just felt really out of place like i didn't really feel like where i grew up was like right for me or where i belonged and I was, I really struggled to like pay attention and, and focus and like care about school. And then once I started wrestling, it just like pieces really fell into place for me across pretty much every dimension of my life. So even academically, you started doing better after wrestling? Yeah, I, I was, I was pretty lazy student for a long time. Um, and then, I mean, I kind of got like middling grades in high school. I had pretty good test scores. So I ended up getting into like pretty good colleges, which was great. But then you wrestled in college. Right? I did, yeah. I wrestled. Did it. you have to walk on? I did, yeah. I had to walk on. Um, one big misconception that a lot of people have about sports, especially college sports, is that like every college athlete just like has it easy. <laughs> like, um, so in football, the like every Division One football school is like mandated that they have eighty five scholarships, full scholarships for for every kid like on the main football roster, and the same is true for basketball. But then when you get to like the Olympic sports, it's under 10 9.9 is like the limit and you have to distribute that amongst the entire roster like so there were kids I, I was never really on scholarship or anything there were some kids on the team who maybe just got their books paid for or you know like half half tuition or something like that so it might be just one kid who has a full ride and then everybody else has a little bit or they just walked on the team or tried out or whatever yeah i think it's mostly like if you're like a real like you know potential all-american kind of guy then you're probably on on a full ride but other than that it's it's kind of distributed 
amongst everyone else. Where'd you go for undergrad? Uh, the University of Pittsburgh. Even to walk onto the team from a high school where they formed the wrestling team on your freshman year. Yeah. You would think you wouldn't even be good enough to make it on a team unless they were really struggling for people. Yeah. I mean, I wasn't is probably, <laughs> is probably the answer, but like, um, I caught a lot of flack from my teammates for a long time for like being from Massachusetts and like not, not being maybe like on the same level as a lot of them. But, um, if there's one thing that I've learned how to do in my life, it's just like dig my heels in and just like put my face down and just go forward. And part of the reason that I wanted to wrestle in college is because I didn't get that experience of like wrestling when I was a kid. And like, I, it was something that, you know, I found so much fulfillment in and it didn't seem right to me that, you know, in a span of like three years or, you know, whatever that it would be over for me. And I had a pretty serious knee injury. I got an April of 2006, which kind of prevented me from like wrestling a lot my senior year. Like I could practice and stuff, but I would be like in and out of the lineup just because I, I like my knee was was still pretty messed up. Did you hurt it in wrestling? I had like a submission grappling oh. practice in the off season. Yeah. So you were doing already submission grappling at this point? Yeah, I, I would do it in the off season basically to like, like cross train or whatever. What made you get into that? Uh, I, I was I got into like mixed martial arts and i was a pro wrestling fan from i was from when i was a kid and so i was like i was just pretty into that whole scene for a long time so it wasn't just like i want to wrestle you were just enamored with this whole idea of combat sports and wrestling and fighting and you're like let me just learn about this whole thing yeah pretty much i think i got to a point where i realized wrestling was like like the one that i really loved the most and kind of like once i realized that i, I really put all my eggs in that basket but um were you training without the gi yeah no gi yeah, yeah were you influenced a lot by like ken shamrock it's funny that you mentioned i have a great ken shamrock story actually which is funny um i when i was i was i just turned nine years old and for my birthday my my birthday present was my dad got tickets for us to go to wrestlemania 14 in boston and um ken shamrock was on the card and my dad was like oh, you like you can buy a t-shirt like we'll get a t-shirt and I wanted to get the the Mick Foley Cactus Jack shirt with like the wanted poster. It's like really iconic wrestling shirt. And my dad was like, your mom probably won't let you wear that. Like that guy looks weird and scary. <laughs> and so I was just like looking around and I was like, uh, I don't really like any of these shirts. I don't know. And so I bought, I ended up getting the Ken Shamrock shirt because nine-year-old me was like, I don't think that many people are going to get the Ken Shamrock shirt. And there's a small chance that they'll see it. Like the camera guy will see it and pan to me in the crowd so that I can be on screen at WrestleMania. And so I had I probably somewhere at my mom's house, I still have, have that Ken Shamrock shirt. So did you as a kid then have some kind of fantasy about becoming a pro wrestler also? Yeah, it, I've been fixated on that since I was a child and still am in many ways. So you know what's interesting is uh, in the US, it's very odd that pro wrestling and pro wrestling fandom and MMA fandom and even like jujitsu fandom it's all kind of separate. Sure. Yeah. And in Japan, pro wrestling fan is the MMA fan. It's it's the same fandom. Yeah, because right? it's the same. It's the, it's the same thing there. And I would have thought that also applied here, but it's not such the case here because, like, even me when I was a kid, same kind of story as you. I was like really a fan of pro wrestling, and for me, I was a fan during the time everybody was a fan. But I just stayed a fan when everybody else dropped off because I'm a bit older than you guys, but. You look at pro wrestling and you realize these guys are really big. So I'll never be big enough. Not even like a cruiserweight. I'll never yeah, be big yeah. enough 
they didn't even have like smaller guys coming in yet at that time. So then when I saw UFC, it wasn't the fact that UFC was real. It was the fact that, hey, they have weight categories, they have little guys, I could do this. Yeah. And that was kind of my pull into combat sports was I was too small for the fake fighting, but I'm actually decent size for real fighting. So that's kind of what pulled me in. Yeah, I guess if you're if you see like uh, like Carl Uno or someone like that or like, I mean, even going earlier, like Hoist Gracie was just like a string bean wearing a gi, like choking dudes out in the first couple of UFC. So I could definitely see that being the case. Yeah, because when I tried out for my high school's wrestling team, when I found out they had weight divisions and I was like, I was like 120 or something. So they had 119. 119, sure. Yeah. 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 I was like, oh, shit. Pro wrestling. Pro wrestling doesn't have 119, but I could do this. Well, yeah, I think especially, I mean, even like, uh, like the real, like the 103 is just like, ki- just like teeny tiny kids basically who are, haven't hit their growth spurt or yeah. whatever. And like, you can't put them in pads and put them out <laughs> like a football field or, and you know, they can't shoot a basketball or whatever. Cause yeah. the hoop is like literally twice their height and, but they want to scrap. Yeah. So. They want to scrap. Exactly. Yeah. I mean, you see that a lot in wrestling too, is guys with Napoleon complexes who, who need an outlet for it. But for high school, childhood, and college, mostly Pennsylvania and New England area, right? Yeah, yeah. I, I, the first time I saw a palm tree in person was when I stepped out of the, the terminal at LAX for the first time. Is the culture also more conservative than, um, let's say, here? It's just different. Like, I mean, and also, I, I feel like people tend to think of, like, Southern California is, like, people think of as like kind of like monolithic culturally yeah but like it's actually very diverse in terms of like i mean even if you like if you drive from long beach to like 10 minutes east of long beach you go quickly from like blue to red territory like in in the drop of a hat right i grew up in like a just kind of like upscale suburban town and massachusetts and almost every election tends to like vote pretty blue but um I mean, we had Republican governors and stuff when I was growing up and like we had a lot of fair amount of conservative kids and parents and families, stuff like that. I remember when, when I was in like the 10th grade, it was the 2004 election. And I remember we had like an in-class debate on like uh, like who you should support. And it was like very 50-50 like so. So up until this point, you're a wrestler, you found kind of your thing. And then somewhere along the line, along with that, you became more academic oriented, right? Yeah, I think um, I whether or not it was like personal, emotional or medical problems, like whatever, when I, I was not able to to like do school the right way. And then like wrestling really gave me like, I feel like all whenever anybody talks about meditating mm-hmm. and how it like centers them. And like they can focus and all, like that's a hundred percent what wrestling was like for me, um, and it just gave me the ability to do things like school. I mean, even even just point like just like go to class and sit there and not fall asleep or, or whatever it was, you know. I think it does that any type of combat sports. I think especially wrestling or grappling or more of the like maybe judo too. Any of the person on person kind of sure. sports. Because when you are person on person, you have this sense of urgency and it doesn't go away. Yeah. Whereas even if you were boxing, there might be like these walls where you're not actually hitting each other. So the urgency might sway back and forth. Yeah. But then when you have that sense of urgency, your mind just has to block everything else out, which is the whole point of meditation. 
those sports with urgency naturally just does that. I also think it's interesting that boxing, I always think of as very strange because of like its culture and its organization is so focused on like the individual. Whereas I think a lot of grappling sports like really have like a lot of com- communal aspect to them. Like you, like there's no, like in, in the way MMA has like the high profile teams, right? Like American top team or whoever, like there's no American top team of boxers, right? It's like one rich guy goes to big bear for three months and they pay to fly in sparring partners or whatever, you know? So I think it, that in, I don't know. I mean, it could be just coming from that aspect, right. Of like, you are like occupying somebody else's personal space and vice versa just by participating in it. So I think that like relaxes people's boundaries in many ways. I think once you get money involved, then it's always a race to the top. Sure. Where, okay, well, there's can only really be one champion. So I want to be that guy. Fuck everybody else. Yeah. But with wrestling, it's always boxing, of course, has the Olympic aspect and you can medal in it. But after the amateur circuit, you can become a professional. Whereas with wrestling, after the Olympics, it's kind of, well, you can go on speaking tours. You could become yeah, a which you're coach. Not <laughs> yeah, but then that's kind of, or you can go into pro wrestling. So you're, I'd say, a lot more limited in your options. So boxing has always been, well, if I can do it, then I don't really care what happens to the rest of my teammates. But also, but MMA is that outlet for a lot of wrestlers now. Yeah, absolutely. And then they brought that culture of we got to have a team. Yeah. Iron sharpens iron. Sure. I, yeah, I, I definitely see that being the case. I mean, like the original MMA team in the country was like, like Lion's Den. But then like the raw guy, like Randy Couture and Dan Henderson and all those dudes were just like psycho wrestlers who were all training together and became, you know, amazing mixed martial artists because of it. Yeah, people always talk about the Lion's Den as the first, but Ken Shamrock essentially ripped off that model from Japan. Or he got it from the pro wrestling the, Yeah, team. the dojo, right? Yeah. Or the stable. Yeah. <laughs> it was more of a stable. But I think MMA is a, American MMA is a weird nut because I think because there's overlap, because wrestlers are coming over or because of the overlap with martial arts, the team family aspect also overlaps. But I think for the same reason why the fans of MMA here are not like in Japan where they're fans of wrestling mma action movies martial arts they're all the same fandom here it's different because i think a lot of mma fans they don't like pro wrestling but they also don't like other sports they only like mma and i think for them it is this weird hyper individual like lone wolf fantasy sure sure so it has the overlap that's where like there's a lot of politics or just the absurd weirdness of it if you enter a jiu-jitsu academy or mma it has that but then it also has these like lone wolf survivalist kind of people also who are like very yeah and then when you talk to them about politics it gets really weird and you're like what 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 is this we in one aspect we're family and then in another aspect people have this mad max every man for themselves mentality also yeah there's no i mean i haven't looked and the data doesn't exist but i'm very sure that there are like higher concentrations of Infowars readers and viewers that like in mma gyms and there are like spread across the rest of the population. No, it's true because oh, I don't know if it's true. <laughs> yeah. But I've heard other political podcasts and they bring up this MMA culture that it is, even though the sport isn't big, it's kind of like this, uh, like uh, skateboarding. It wasn't like a huge mainstream sport, but it influenced greater culture, right? Yeah. Pop culture. And I think MMA is kind of doing that. It's yeah. influencing greater culture. Yeah. 
And it, it is more of this, yeah, InfoWars kind of weird, not your, you know, grandfather's country western rural right. form of conservatism. It is more of an urban internet based kind of unusual, you know, I call it sometimes the Portlandia, right? Where it's like Portland is known as being weird, but that doesn't mean weird automatically means left. The right wing is also weird. Yeah, no, and I think it's that interesting in the sense that like to a lot of people now, like politically, it's not even like left or right. It's just they want something else, right? Like there are large swarms of people who are like, I love Bernie Sanders. And then Bernie Sanders didn't get the Democratic nod. And they're like, Trump all the way. Let's do this thing, yeah. right? Just because they're, they, whether or not they can like, pinpoint what it is that's like not satisfying them or not like like letting them live the life they want to live or seeing aspects of their community that they're not satisfied with right like maybe they don't pinpoint what they think is the solution but they're like well let's just try something i don't know the the right what we've been doing isn't working it's like in video games button smashing sure yeah. i don't know what's going to happen in this chaos yeah sometimes i win and sometimes i don't and I think that type of culture of button smashing, yeah. a lot of those people filter into American MMA. I think that is the culture that we've seen. So in college, now you're wrestling, that kind of centered you. When did you have an interest for subjects and find subjects that you're like, I'm really interested in this. and I'm going to pursue this. Yeah, I think, well, I think I initially became interested in studying economics because like um, any... Like I played a lot of games growing up, I still do. And like, what kind of games? I, like magic. I play magic, like oh, yeah. very competitively, like travel to tournaments and stuff like that. Yeah. Uh, but so, like, I was always like fascinated by the idea that you could kind of like quantify how people would behave. I recently sold a bunch of my magic cards because <laughs> I wasn't playing anymore. But yeah. the people I played with, who was competitive at the same time I was, they became professional poker players. Yeah. So it's interesting that. Magic the Gathering kind of taught them, even though they didn't learn it in college, just through trial and error, like optimized play and game theory. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, Magic has like less bluffing than poker or something like that, but it's still, it, it builds this like very iterative, like level one, two, three, four, five, whatever thinking, right? Which is like level zero is just like, what am I doing? Then level one is like, does my opponent know what I'm doing? And then level two is like, does my opponent know that I know that they know? And, and right, it, be, it builds these like these scaffolds, right? Which is really useful in poker for something like bluffing. I think even bluffing there is in magic and you'll know better than me. But back then it wasn't that you needed to bluff. You bluff just because you wanted to troll them. Oh. You just wanted to see their face yeah. when you wrecked them. So you just bluff yeah. and then you just see them freak out. It was more for that. Reason. Yeah. Oh, yeah. It was like early trolling. Actually, the generation that was playing it were the original, the original trolls. Absolutely, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. No, ga gaming and trolling, as anybody is well aware, are two inextricably linked things, right? Yeah, I, I mean, that was I, I played a lot of I played Magic, I played some some other card games and stuff growing up, but um, that that idea was always interesting to me that like you could actually not just in the abstract think about what people are going to do, but actually like say like oh like we can put some numbers on this and figure it out quantifying decisions yeah yeah what i've come to learn is that I, I went through the arc of learning more and more about it and believing more and more in it and then sort of going in the end being like well this is fake this is all fake <laughs> and, and but so in college you became an econ major 
Yeah, and in, in math, I specifically like. Uh, I was interested in in the theory behind all of it. I became interested in math. I like wasn't a very good math student growing up, but then like, were you a double major? Yeah. So one one thing that's very bizarre too about like studying economics in this country is like if you took a major from pretty much any discipline like chemistry or English literature or whatever and stuck them in like a PhD program in that subject they would at least be like fluent in what was going on. But if you took like an, an economics major and stuck them in an economics PhD program, they would like drown instantly. Cause it's, well, cause it, it's like, it's like incredibly quantitative math that they probably didn't even like have to study. Right. Like, and that also, I mean, first of all, economists view economics as like a hard science, which is dubious at best. Right. Uh, but then also like people at large, like society at large, observes it as like a well these people know what they're talking about it's based like they've developed all these theories and stuff and i mean i've come to a point where it seems very obvious to me that i mean it not even beyond obvious but like insofar as like microeconomic theory is built as we derive theorems from some sort of baseline level foundations right like you can't really discredit any of those proofs Right. But that doesn't mean it, they have anything to say about how the world actually works. Right. And that's kind of the problem. That was a later kind of revelation for you, right? Yeah. So at this point, you were still buying in. Ooh, big time. Yeah. So you were kind of becoming already like what? A typical liberal, like more of. Oh, yeah. I was like a very like, uh, I don't want to say like a fiscally, <laughs> I'm fiscally conservative, but socially liberal kind of person. But uh just like I think very sort of like regular party line Democrat liberal. Like a Hillary Clinton. Yeah. yeah. Or like that capitalism is a good path to kind of equity, equality, yeah, well, diversity, I, all those things. I mean, if you're like mired in the idea that markets clear and markets solve problems and markets choose the right thing, right, then it's hard. I feel like it's hard not to be. But if you obtain the information that maybe that's not true, then you're like, Oh, okay, <laughs> maybe, maybe something's amiss here. So in college, did you have an emphasis? I very much studied like the micro foundations of economic theory and game theory and like the math that goes with it. So like game theory was like my area of like interest and expertise. Like, so a lot I was of modeling. Doing, yeah, what I was doing research in and stuff like that. And even beyond not even modeling, but just like the actual like the theory theory of like, well, what like, I mean, so everybody like knows what. I get, I'm guessing in this room, everybody's familiar with the idea of like Nash equilibrium or something like that. Paul? Isn't that from Beautiful Mind? Yeah, <laughs> That's exactly. where it was yeah, invented. Yeah, yeah, right? yeah, it was yeah. invented in that movie. It was invented in the movie. Russell Crowe invent is an accomplished mathematician. Yeah, but, he won um, Nobel. Yeah, so like the idea, like there, and part of this is what I was referring to earlier, right? Where there's this like huge gap between this concept of Nash equilibrium that people can understand, which I mean in... Like the shortest set of words I can say is like Nash equilibrium is like the stable state of a game where like nobody can improve by changing their behavior. Okay. Uh, but what that is in words versus what it is as a mathematical construct are so far apart, right? Like 99.99 plus percent of people who go through an economics major will never ever know the 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 theory behind the math behind it yeah, that will just never be taught well that's always what i was curious about is game theory more behavioral or is it because they try to quantify it through math but when they explain it it sounds more like psychology 
So it's like, which is it? Is it a bit of both? And if it is even a bit of psychology, how can you even turn even that little bit into math? Doesn't that little bit taint the whole thing? I mean, that harkens back to what I was saying earlier, which is like, insofar as game theory it comes from like a, a set of basic principles and assumptions, and you can like sort of build on top of that, that doesn't mean it says anything about how the world actually works, right? And like Prisoner's Dilemma, which is like the the example from the movie is like the perfect example of that, where like there's a prediction or like a an equilibrium concept where people are like, well, this is the only state that could persist in the game. And if you have people do it in a laboratory, they don't do that. Oh, because that was back then. People, they assumed everybody was a rational actor. Right, exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right. And now, now, however many years later, we're fucked. because <laughs> That was the original behavioral economics guys, right? They got so much backlash because they're like, you're fucking up everything we've worked on. Yeah, Just yeah. shut up. Exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Are there useful tools from game theory? Absolutely. I think poker players study game theory for a reason. And like the whole... Like the whole poker has shifted from like guys in cowboy hats, like playing poker in Vegas to like people running software, playing like 16 hands at a time. And there's actually like a set of of like poker strategy called GTO, which is game theory optimal, which is just like instead of people trying to develop like against individual players. Now, people have the strategy of I like I play game theory optimal poker and then I have deviations based on like something. Right. Like I randomize. Maybe like uh, when I'm like at a decision point where I'm either going to like randomly bluff or randomly check or whatever it is, like I look at my watch and if my watch is in one quadrant, I do this. And if my watch is in another quadrant, I do this. Right. Well, but I, that's useful, though, in the sense that like you as a person can't randomize your behavior. Right. And that's why they pick some some external thing like that. Right. They look they look up at the tournament clock. Right. And if like the if the number's even right in the second digit, then they bluff. And if the number is like, ah, then they fold or something like that, right? Yeah. Because you, and and this is actually another like really like fundamental thing about game theory is, um, so like, for example, like let's say we were going to play rock, paper, scissors, okay? Uh, is there any way for us to like gain any advantage over the other person? And the answer is, if you believe that you have like some kind of perception about w- the other person, like if you think they're very likely to throw rock for whatever reason, like then maybe you can change your behavior, right? But the only thing we can really do to like make the other person not care about what they're doing is just, okay, I'll roll a die. If it's one or two scissors, if it's a three or four paper, it's five or six rocks, something like that, right? There are, and I mean, and this is the same thing with poker too, right? Where like if people have leaks, like if if we're playing in the rock, paper, scissors world championship, and you know that I'm, I do 50, 50% rock, 25% paper, 25% scissors. You know how to beat me, right? You just always play paper, yeah. right? You won't always win, but that's like the absolute best thing you could do against yeah. me. That's like another departure from like the idea of e- like people in game theory have come to accept that like equilibrium, this Nash equilibrium, isn't necessarily like a proxy for like predictive behavior always, right? But we, you can treat it as like a sort of like a sinkhole, right? Where if the game ends up here, it can't climb out of that spot the financial markets is the best example where academics and economists have been studying it and they're trying to get better and better and this is not an art this is a science we figure this out and yet they can never really predict what's going to happen which doesn't throw away the whole thing something can be useful without being able to predict anything right or it can be useful but not as useful as you originally thought right and you can amend your behavior 
accordingly. Yeah, it's telling you something. What it's telling you, how useful it is, what you can do with it, I don't know. But it's definitely telling you something. Sure. We take so much from economics at face value, right? I mean, this is true of science too. Like, I think so many common people like views like scientific progress and scientific discovery and accomplishments in different physical sciences is not like some kind of like logical truth that we access the way that math is, right? Like two plus two is four because of a long set of axioms, right? Like uh, Bertrand Russell, it took him like 25 pages to prove that like one plus one was two in Principia Mathematica or whatever, right? Um, Darwin's theory of evolution fits the world as we see it, but like it's not in some logical system that exists independently of our reality, right? And so much is like science is completely socially informed and people treat it as though science is not socially informed and science is just this like hard logical thing that inf- that should inform how society works when like in actuality it works in the completely opposite direction, right? Yeah, I think if I were to explain it to listeners in a layman's way, two plus two, you don't need observational studies. You don't need to replicate that to know that's true. But most of what everything else we consider to be science isn't like that. It's done by observational studies. Right. We have this culture now of new atheists and skeptics and all this shit. Sure. And they, they're science lovers, but they're the same kids who suck at math. Or they don't even know the math of what they're saying. It's more of an appeal to authority. Like this guy, Bill Nye, says something, so it's true I because I respect Bill Nye. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I think if you are like outside of the confines of hard sciences, like if you're not a scientist or someone who works in a lab or something like that, right? Like you just, all you hear about is like the big stuff, right? Like you don't observe the 10,000 trials of the experiment that failed or whatever, right? Like you, you just hear about like, oh, they found the Higgs boson in, in the, at like the large Haljan collider or whatever. Like, oh, the, they found the God particle or, or, whatever you know like they've observed this thing that's been theorized right like stephen hawking came up with some like black hole radiation thing and like finally after years and years and years like they've verified via enough like gamma radiation signals or whatever that it's true but that's that's all people see right and and so i think that's kind of why science occupies that space because people only see these like things coming out of the blue they're like oh my god people theorize this god particle existed for whatever and they found it but they didn't see the like, you know, billions and billions and billions of dollars that went into finding or something like that. They don't know what they don't know. Yeah, yeah, exactly. There's known knowns, right? And there's known, there's things that we know that we know. There's things that we know that we don't know. And Donald Rumsfeld, the greatest philosophical accomplishment of the (laughs) last- Well, he got made fun of, but what he was saying is actually true. No, like that actually, I think Zizek like wrote about that at length, right? That like, and I joke about it, but I believe that this is like, an important accomplishment in modern philosophical thought was Donald Rumsfeld standing at that fucking podium being like, well, yeah, there's things that we know that we know and there's things that we know that we don't know, right? And then there's things that we don't know that we don't know. Yeah, just because you don't like him doesn't mean what he just said wasn't really like <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> profound. Yeah, absolutely. So let's fast forward. You got into, afterwards, you went to Caltech, right? Yeah, yeah. I started in the PhD program at Caltech in 2012. And that was to pursue more of yeah, so Caltech's social science department is like pretty unique. Um, they don't have like any macro people. They have people who do like like micro and game theory and then like political scientists and uh, people who study econometrics, which is like st- statistical economics. Um, and then they also have people who do like 
like uh, like neuroscience experiments, mostly in relation to economics. But so it's not it's not like a typical econ department. And that was kind of what attracted me to it. That and the fact that it's always at least 70 degrees here. <laughs> so you were pursuing that. And then somewhere along the line, you stopped. Yeah, my heart, my heart wasn't in it. So I, my last year of wrestling college is 2011. And I moved here in 2012. And so in the interim, I, I like started training like in the gi and, and doing like real, real jujitsu and stuff like that. And that was actually another big part of coming here. I was like, well, if I go to Southern California, I'll have great places to train. Um, and I think a lot of the reason that I went to graduate school in the first place was like, my life for four, four years was like, well, I train and I go to school and I really like that. How do I keep doing that? Okay. I'll get a funded PhD program and then I'll train and I'll just keep extending this life. Right. And I quickly realized that, you know, that that's not really tenable when you're expected to pull like nine hour days, just sitting in your office at your desk, just like working on problem sets and whatever else. So. But you did get a master's and then at yeah. some point after that, you stopped to train full time. I made the decision to leave in like April or May of 2013. So really not that far in. Um, and I still had like funding. And so basically I spent that whole summer just like training. I would train like five, five hours a day. I would come do like morning class, afternoon class, evening class and go back to Pasadena where I was living at the time. And so a lot of it, me leaving was just being like, okay, well, I don't really need that much to live. I just need to eat food and sleep and then go train. And, and that's that. And so I, my plan was just like find like tutoring job or something like that. And just really try to figure out a way to like hack it. Right. And be one of like, yeah. One thing a lot of people don't realize is like jujitsu has like the kind of like surfer snowboarder culture of the like jujitsu bum. Yeah. Right. Who's just like, yeah, I just like, I don't know. I like I sleep at this black belt's garage and I pay like 300 bucks a month to live. And then I like walk to the gym every day. And I was like, hell yeah, I want to do that. It is weird that it has that, but it's also a cost prohibitive sport. So cost prohibitive. so expensive. Also Dude, train. a gi is so expensive for no reason. It's crazy. <laughs> so I wonder if you have to be the beach bum because you have to like minimize your cost and everything else just to yeah. spend it on jujitsu. Oh, yeah, yeah, for sure. So you were kind of on. The, this guy named John Danaher, who's from New York, who was an academic who got his master's in philosophy. He was on the PhD track mm -hmm. and then he quit to train jujitsu full time. But this was like 100 years ago. So this yeah. is different than now. Yeah, I'm reluctant to say that I have a lot in common with John Danaher, but I think in some in some ways. Yes. Yeah. yeah. I'm not wearing a rash guard right now. I will say so. <laughs> <laughs> so you were on that and you were training a lot and then something happened. Right. And then you had like a real yeah existential moment yeah uh i was not far from here really i was biking to cobrinius to, to go to the afternoon class for people who don't know cobrinius where i also trained too is probably the most highly regarded school in the la area for jiu-jitsu which is really saying something too because i mean yeah like this is the the epicenter right of yeah we've all trained other places right yeah yeah, yeah. and then you just can't compare yeah no it's so I had, um, I was, I, I rode my bike. I was bike, I was biking pretty much every at the time, like bike, mixing biking and public transit because I didn't have money for a car. And so, um, I was riding, uh, on, on sixth street and there was 
like construction in the lane ahead of me. And I had like my big gear bag on my back, right? And so I, since I had to like merge lanes over, I like checked my shoulder. And then when I like went back to looking straight, my right hand was just too far down on the bars of the handlebar. So it like dragged, dragged it sideways and I hit the curb and went over the curb and just went, went full, full pile driving myself. Yeah, yeah, onto the. Also, oh, you wasn't like you fell sideways. You no, went no. over. I went over handlebar. the bo- over my handlebars and, and went head first in the ground. Yeah, oh, it was fucking gnarly. Yeah, so you could have died. Yeah, I mean, I was wearing a helmet too. I definitely could have died for sure. Like where I grew up in Oregon, like I grew up in the Portland Beaverton area. Yeah, and in the winter, like everybody still jogs when it rains. Oh, they yeah. still ride bikes. I did too. It wasn't a big deal, but in Oregon, it doesn't snow that much, but it rains and it gets wet. So we would in the winter get black ice, which oh, for you don't. Is, yeah. yeah. So I've I've almost died on black ice also in in a, in a car. But for those who don't know, black ice is where it's frozen top concrete of the road. So it's not ice. So you can't see it. It just looks like regular road. And then all of a sudden it starts skidding. Yeah. So every year, kids riding bicycles just slip on black ice and kill themselves all the time. And Oregon is really good about wearing helmets, but it doesn't matter. Yeah. The helmet doesn't matter. I wonder if. You're wrestling and your thick ass neck There's helped no, you. Yeah, I could have been like fucked up bad. And I mean, this is like like Brock Lesnar, like when he famous, he tried to do a shooting star press. Yeah, yeah. And just went head first into the mat in, in the main event of WrestleMania. And everyone was like, that guy's dead. And he was just like, no, I'm, yeah, I don't know. His traps go like above his ears. And, you know, he's been doing neck bridges his entire life. And so same thing with Kurt Angle, where he had already had a broken neck before he got into pro wrestling from yeah. wrestling. Yeah. Then he broke it again. Famously won the Olympics, right? Yeah, with, a yeah. bro- with a broken freaking neck. And then he broke it again in pro wrestling. But his neck is so fucking thick. Yeah. That anybody else would have been paralyzed. But him and Brock Lesnar, yeah. <laughs> they just get up you see him now i mean he's on wwe television a lot now his he kurt angle's neck is fused and his traps are like permanently like shrugged up and his arms just kind of like hang in his sides he looks like an action figure you know where he's like like perfectly still so you fell over and then what happened what was what were your injuries i went over my handlebars i landed on my head probably knocked myself unconscious don't know i mean there's no really way to know if there were no observers around right and I did what any logical person would do. I got on my bike and I went to jiu-jitsu class and I trained for two hours, right? <laughs> yeah, right? And I, I felt fine. I felt totally fine. Like, I had like a slightly tender spot on my head, but I was like, I'm cool. And then like at eight o'clock that night, I was like, I don't feel good. Something's wrong. And then I woke up the next day and I'm like, whoa, I don't know what's wrong with me, but I know that I'm like fucked up bad. So you didn't have instant concussions, like symptoms. No. And anytime I've gotten a concussion since, it's been the same thing. Where I'll, I'll like hit my head and I'll be like, that didn't feel good. And then like 12 hours later, I'm like, oh, okay, now I'm feeling it. Paul, have you ever had a concussion? Yeah, it's strange in that moment you don't feel it. But afterwards, you get ringing headaches, oh, yeah. sensitivity to light. When you lie down, your equilibrium is thrown off. See, for me, every time I've, not a lot, but the few times I've knocked my head like that, I'm instantly like nauseated and like throwing up. Yeah. So I guess it affects everybody differently. It's like brain damage where some people can take multiple headshots and they're still fine. They seem to be... Well, you don't know if they're fine, maybe later in the night. Yeah. Or people who seem to be impervious to damage and then later on in their careers are like, oh yeah, you're paying for it now. Yeah. 
So you had like a delayed onset, not muscle soreness, but like yeah, I concussion. Had I had docs for sure. Delayed yeah. onset concussion symptoms. But I mean, I was I was messed up for like a long time. Other than your head, your neck, your spine, those kind of things were fine. I mean, my neck's been checked out and doctors are always like, yeah, you're fine. But I think like my C2 and C3 vertebrae are messed up okay. for sure. But the heavy damage was to your head. Yeah. Um. I, this happened September 19th, 2013. I remember the day. And it took me like six months just to be able to like do a part-time tutoring job. Like I was like laying down in the dark. I was sleeping like between 14 and 15 hours every night. I couldn't, I couldn't look at it like a TV or computer screen. So I would like lie on the couch and put on like Simpsons DVDs and like look away and just listen. Well, like my, all my roommates went to like work and school and stuff like that. Um, if I went to the grocery store, I had to wear sunglasses because the fluorescent lighting was like so, so harsh. Like I would basically would have had to like puke basically right there on the spot if I didn't have sunglasses on. I mean, it took me like almost like a year to even be able to look at like a phone or computer screen and not. There was like that weird streak. Remember, Paul, like of MMA fighters who got knocked out in training and then they just had to retire. TJ Grant. Yeah, yeah that was he was a big one. Is he, he and then a- Chris Holsworth. Yeah. Well, I mean, T.J. Dale saw like need him in the back of the skull, right? And so now he retired. But yeah, it happened to Eddie Alvarez too. That's why he had to withdraw from the second or yeah second Michael Chandler fight, and that's what got Will Brooks his claim to fame. And he didn't feel it at the moment, but when he got home, and then he kept trying to figure it out and push through. It was like I can't do this. I can't even sit straight without falling over. And when I close my eyes, my balance is thrown off. Yeah. So basically, the science behind it. I, I was very fortunate. Like one of the best concussion neurologists in the country is here, Chris Christopher Giza. He's in the UCLA Medical Center, and so I got to see him. And what he basically explained to me is like, so pretty much everybody has this thermostat in their brain, which like regulates your exposure to like stimuli that cause something like a migraine, right? So like loud noises or light or whatever it is. And so when you get a concussion, it basically just like turns the thermostat to zero. Right? And, and it, you no longer have tolerances for these things. And like some people's brains heal at a reasonable rate and some people's brains heal at a slower rate. Right. And some people's brains don't don't ever reset properly. When did the more severe symptoms like light and other things go away for you? Fully like two years. It took two years. It took like two years. Yeah. Fuck. Yeah. No, it was bad. I mean, uh, a lot of it was just like comorbid with like I was going through like a like a really hard depressive episode because I just like quit something that I put a lot of work into and I was, you know, 24 years old and just trying to figure my life out and, and to have that happen at that time when I didn't have a job and, you know, like didn't have a lot of resources and stuff was like really stressful. And, and, um, so I mean, even just like clawing out of that kind of like depressive hole, which again, it's hard to disentangle what was caused by, you know, a brain injury and what was caused by just, you know, mental health problems. Well, it's all encased in the same thing. Yeah, right? exactly. Yeah. It's all happening in the same unit. So it's definitely not helping one or the other. But then this kind of event and this time kind of changed your perspective of everything, right? Yeah, definitely. I think, um, I mean, I can't even like pinpoint the days, but I've had these like two like real moments of clarity, I think, in my life. First one, it happened in college. So my, my dad died in uh, my junior year of college. And um, I went, 
that was really really hard on me mm. uh like we were really tight okay. super close like he he would like drive you know like 10 hours from massachusetts to come to like my wrestling tournaments and stuff like that and i would like call him every day after practice he took of. you to wrestlemania yeah oh yeah, yeah. no no, yeah that's definitely. a fucking dad yeah right exactly <laughs> yeah of course and um so my dad died in in late 2009 in my junior college and I like went off the fucking rails. Like I was just, I mean, part of it was like, I mean, what 21 year old division one wrestler isn't like an aggro, you know, <laughs> guy in the first place. But um, it was just like a lot of like, not like I, w- I wasn't like using or anything, but it was a lot of just like self destructive and, and outwardly destructive, like behavior patterns and stuff like that. And I remember lying down in bed like about to go to sleep just trying to like just feeling sorry for myself and i remember like having this thought where i was like i have it worse than anyone you know i was like i am out of the seven billion people on the planet like i have it the worst right now and the second i thought that i was like well that's not true (laughs) the mathematician (laughs) in your brain kicked in exactly i was like that's not true at all i was like all right i gotta turn this around and and that really it was like that moment of clarity really helped me and then the one that i had uh while well, i was injured where i was like i like literally couldn't even pay my rent my roommates had to pay my rent for me and like i was accruing all these medical bills when i was like struggling just to find insurance and stuff like that i was like well i've been i've been pretty much set up to succeed by being like white and a male and like pretty you know like pretty much any kind of like privilege that could be conferred upon someone right like i grew up in a stable household and never had to worry about food or water or anything you know like but you were also like educated you had all these other yeah exactly i was like like, i'm 24 years old i have a master's degree i was like and i can't i'm i'm like fucked and i was like and i'm i'm fucked i can't even imagine what's going on like down the totem pole right and i was like holy shit this whole this whole system is fucked like it's 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 a nightmare right and and so that moment of clarity was like like huge for me which like really shaped basically what's happened with you know my politics my personal beliefs going forward so do you think in a way your situation is i don't want to say it's uncommon but for people who have been there they kind of pivot towards the hard right where it says well if i'm fucked it means everybody else has fucked me i could see that i mean would you say you were like always more naturally empathetic yeah i mean there's a reason that I like I definitely identified with more like left politics politics and stuff, even just growing up. Uh not like serious left politics, but you know, I was like I was like a huge Obama supporter at the time and things like that. Mm-hmm. Uh I, you basically can go in two directions, right? When you're experiencing pain, which is like you're like, I'm in pain and everybody else is doing it to me, and I'm gonna like and I'm putting it out to them. I'm trying to like offload it onto them, right? Or you can be like well, if I'm experiencing this, I'm certainly not a monolith on this earth. Surely some other people are experiencing it too. Like, and I don't know. I just felt like some amount of like solidarity with people who were just going, going through it. You know, you thought that that was an idea in your head that maybe people have it worse. And then when did you start looking at things from an academic standpoint of reading literature or even knowing which direction you wanted to go? Cause just because you have that feeling doesn't mean you're going to start reading like Marx or something. Sure, sure, sure. Actually, it's funny. I, I don't even know how. I think it was just in like a Wikipedia hole or something. And I found out about this book called Dark Alliance by Gary Webb. 
who is a journalist for the San Jose Mercury News. And Dark Alliance is an insane book that you should read, but it's basically like the ultimate vacation book for like left-wing dads, where it, <laughs> like, it is just like this guy dug through archives and records and just basically uncovered the whole, like the CIA trafficked cocaine into this country to fund the Contras thing. Like, which sounds like a crazy conspiracy, but it's just 100% true. And this is like a 450-page account of it. And it was initially first published in the San Jose Mercury News. And uh, it was like, just like the heaviest hitting journalism. Like, journalism like that in newspapers like, doesn't happen anymore, right? I mean, for obvious reasons, like Jeff Bezos owns the Washington Post and stuff like that. Wait, did you have anybody in your life already who was into more of left of liberal politics, like from wrestling or jujitsu or pro wrestling or anything no a lot of it was on it like i've been a, a big consumer of the online the web for a long time and yeah. so um i've just you know run in around and fallen in different different web web communities and holes around the years and i found my way into this like bizarre memes facebook group that had all these like left politics people in it mm -hmm. and and there was a there was a time in my life where I would have just been a shithead and like tried to troll them or just like argue with them about why markets work and you know things yeah, like that. Yeah. And just like because of my injury and because of how just depleted I felt, like physically and emotionally, everything, I was like, I'm just gonna listen. Mm. You know, I just I was like, I'm just gonna read and see what these people have to say and I'm gonna listen. Instead of automatically dismissing and just yeah. arguing, you're just like, okay, I don't even have the the energy to argue with you. Just okay, what what do you got to say? Exactly, yeah, because I mean, uh, I mean, a lot of it I think was was like sort of like like proto, like Me Too and like even like Hillary Clinton style like liberal feminism like is still like somewhat not new, but in a sense, it's like entered the popular consciousness much more. And this was like a little before those things like really entered. The popular consciousness and so it's like it's jarring to read like a trans person be like yeah trans people are, are like disproportionately murdered or like that trans people are targeted and arrested by police for like basically like for prostitution or i don't i don't really like to use that term i don't know what the actual arrest term is or whatever right but um and, and a lot of it too is like this was like right around when Michael Michael Brown was killed by the police in St. Louis, okay. right? And so like a lot of it was just like reading about that, and then people being like, "Well, here's like dozens of these cases, right? Where this isn't unique, and this is a phenomenon that's you know like endemic to society and how society works." To kind of use you as the barometer, Democrat, liberal, like Obama, so from there to becoming more left wing, let's say it's hard to define liberal versus left of liberal, right? And I think this is a good way where when you're a liberal, yeah, you realize there are injustices, but for the most part, things are pretty good. Right. And then when you go over, you realize, like you're giving examples where you realize things are more unjust than I thought. Right. And I think that's when the dial goes where you're like, oh, wait, there's just a lot of injustices. I just kind of didn't pay attention or I didn't want to know about it. Or maybe I only wanted to look at the injustices at the top. Like, for me and Paul, maybe, right? We're Asian American. So our version of that could have been what they call the bamboo ceiling, which is another form of glass ceiling where yeah. you're like already really rich and you're at the top, but now there's a ceiling keeping you away from CEO status. Yeah. And that's the kind of injustice 
or representation you're talking about. It sounds obvious now, but I bought into that idea a long time ago. I thought that's what it meant to be left. Yeah. But then I never thought about, wait, how do we get more Asians or persons of color into middle class in the first place for yeah. them to even be within shot of that glass ceiling, right? Yeah. Glass ceiling is like you've maximized the top and now you're trying to go up higher. How do we even get people into that ball game? Yeah. And I think that's probably the bigger injustices, but it's like we just didn't pay attention to that. As, as, as much as I think empathy is overplayed and overused, it must be some form of like hardwired natural empathy that made people care about that. And then like, they're like, okay, let me pay attention to this. Let me listen to this. What other injustices are out there? Yeah, I think I'm like overly sensitive. I just feel bad, you know, yeah. which, and I'm not even saying that like I'm a martyr or something like just things, I see things and they make me feel bad. And when I, people suffer, yeah. that's bad. <laughs> you would think that's just like an obvious people right. suffering bad. Yeah. But like what's so, I mean, American liberalism, like and American liberals are so tied up in their belief in the American project, right? That things like homelessness, they view as like, like it, it's just a thing that it's a bad thing. And our society's organized in this way. And like, there are homeless people. And I, I like, what do you want from me? Basically, right? It's more like a zit. It's like yeah. a perfect face and a zit appears. I don't know how the fuck that happened. Right, yeah. They just happen. Zits happen. Homelessness somehow just kind yeah. of come out of a vacuum somewhere. We didn't do anything to cause that. It just appeared. Yeah. Like nobody wants to be homeless, yeah. you know, and is the available housing stock in this country enough to house all of its citizens? Yes. More, more than once over. There's all kinds of vacant housing properties owned by banks that, you know, got gobbled up in like 2009 and 2010 that are just sitting there that could have someone live in them that nobody lives in them, you know? Well, look at LA. For people who don't know, it looks similar to favelas in Brazil where you have like just one side of town and then across the street, just tenements of homeless tents and it's like a village. Yeah, Skid, Skid Row in downtown LA is like one of the most like famous epicenters of homelessness like in the country. And it used to be kind of just housed there, but now it's everywhere across the LA metro area, right? And you have that. Yet you have all this new housing and development that's been built and being built right now. And we had a whole thing about rent control and stuff. And we, yeah, <laughs> and we just like, fuck no. But anyways, so we have all this new housing and we're constantly building it. And they're crazy expensive. And people are still like the owners of these buildings are like, they're sitting on all these empty apartments right now. And instead of lowering the rent, they're just like, nope, we're going to keep them at $3,000 a month for a one bedroom. And I'll let it just sit there and rot rather than well, make no, it more markets affordable. Markets work, right? Like they, we've reached equilibrium. The equilibrium solution is that you know renters can't afford apartments, and then people who own them want more money, so nobody lives in them, and the people who are charging don't make any money. It's perfect economics. We're living in a utopia. I yeah, just, I just sort of redefined my definition of utopia. Now, my my definition of utopia was the problem. Yeah, I mean, even on the left. Like, okay, first of all, I just want to make it clear that my own brand of left politics are the uniquely correct ones. Everyone to the right of me is a fascist. Okay. Every, everyone to the left of me is is too extreme. Okay, I just okay. want to make that clear. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. Um, even in like the DSA or somewhere, like you have a lot of people who think that like just developing is the answer, right? Mm. Like just developing 
another housing complex that's closer to public transit like does not fix the problem of we have people who are homeless and they need somewhere to live right and you have they have this like long-term vision of like today's luxury apartments are like tomorrow's affordable housing right but the problem is that today's luxury apartments can't be filled because people don't have money right and there are people who would love to live in them if they just could but they can't you look at a city like san francisco where i think closely more than ever is where la is headed if we keep this up yeah you have very liberal policies, especially within gay rights, trans rights, and they have raised their minimum wage even higher yeah. than any other city, I think, in California. And yet homelessness is an epidemic. Yeah. And you can't drive in L.A. in any direction a mile without seeing tents set up. No. It's almost like an Uber hotspot or hotspots of Wi-Fi. It's like, yeah. oh, there's a tent. There's another tent. There's another tent. And the greatest... I don't say juxtapositions or ironies is when you see brand new luxury housing and then there's tents in front of it. Yeah. It's like, really? Yeah. Well, I mean, like even in San Francisco, like San Francisco is like one of the most nominally like liberal cities in the country, right? I mean, cops in San Francisco can just legally confiscate tents from homeless people. They can just take them. That's, that's an actual, that's a, that's a municipal law there as though like, confiscating a homeless person's tent is what's going to solve the problem right like literally the state stealing from a person who has nothing like this is how we fix it you know but (laughs) i don't know where they're gonna go nowhere right they're like okay cool um i guess i'll stay here with no tent now yeah right you never want to be the person who's just saying like oh well like the democrats and republicans are the same and there's no difference between them right but like it's true in the sense that they have like nominal differences on policy and just these like extreme differences on like whether or not gay people are humans or whatever. Yeah. Right. And like, this is a perfect example of it, right. Where San Francisco is seen as this like beacon of tolerance, right. Like one of like, it's like the most famously gay city in the country. Right. Yeah. But countless people are sleeping outside. Uh, a ridiculous, tech industry full of superfluous nonsense and imaginary angel funding is is popped up there which has driven up rents and like local people can't live there anymore and what happens to people with disabilities and old people who get evicted well you just said the magic word right tolerance tolerance is libertarian like libertarians can be tolerant like i'm tolerating it yeah like tolerance doesn't mean justice right and to try to be just with something you need to be more than tolerant so I think, yeah, kind of like the Overton window, we've slid the scale over where we think tolerance is the farthest you can go on the left. And it's like, no, you can more than just tolerate something. Yeah. You could actually try to do something about right. it. Like the idea of tolerance or even the idea of like celebrating diversity from liberals is like, all right, dope. If you're a vegan soldier in the IDF, you can get non-leather boots now. Yeah. <laughs> and it's like the Palestinian child that you're stomping on doesn't care right? If your boots are leather or not leather, right? Like, I think that trans people get a terrible rap in this country. And like, it doesn't make me feel better that like the military is, is like making it more feasible for them to serve and be part of like the worst imperial war machine on planet Earth, right? Like, that's not, that's not progress, right? Like, maybe just like giving people the basic resources they need to live, or like 
not have to like pay it. Imagine like getting in a car accident and being like, fuck, I can't afford an ambulance and calling an Uber to take you to the hospital. Because that's not even something you have to imagine. That just happens all the time. That's like happened today, you know? Well, it's kind of a different version of let's start from here. Like their version of let's start from here is we have Uber or we have, you know, Goldman Sachs at the Pride Parade. That's a start. Whereas your version of a start is, no, my version of a start is let's get people fed or give them basic you know, uh, resources to live. Let's fucking plunge Goldman Sachs of all its assets and use that to feed people. (laughs) So (laughs) different starting points. And if you frame it in that way, it does sound like the other starting point is like, wait, that doesn't sound like a starting point. That seems like something you go for at the end. You know, let's build a house. And then, you know, what doilies you put down on the table. Let's do that last. Whereas the other idea is like, we start from the doilies and from there, yeah. the house will manifest. Yeah. You don't look at how at a house that's just like burning and you're like, mm, I don't like that window treatment. Let's <laughs> like when it's on fire. Yeah. Maybe you should put out the fire. There was a post back in the day went viral and I still remember it being circulated where somebody made an argument that fast food workers shouldn't make 15 an hour because what they do is unskilled when you compare it to the EMT who makes less than that. But it's as if we're arguing from a point where it's imaginary as opposed to why the fuck are both of them not getting paid what they're worth? Why shouldn't the EMT get paid more than the fast food worker when they're both fighting for slave wages, essentially? Yeah, yeah, of course. Why don't you just pay the fast food worker more than a living wage and the EMT who's responsible for saving lives gets paid proportionately? But I mean, the answer to that, right, is like we're all fed from a young age the idea that like your your skills and hard work is what will pay off for you, right? And not the idea that like, the means of production are privately owned and people will just extract whatever they want from you. Well, even to follow that logic, right? If you really think it through and you tell this EMT, they work as hard as they can and you'll get paid, right? But there's a maximum cap that an EMT can make. So what are you talking about? And they're like, well, then you can eventually leave being an EMT and become an entrepreneur or whatever. But then you're no longer an EMT. I'm no longer putting in that hard work in the thing that I was originally trying to do. So even then, your answer is to stop doing the thing that is paying me so little. So if you think it through, it still falls apart. Well, I mean, like, okay, you start off as an EMT with your own little ambulance, right? And you keep treating burns and you keep driving paralyzed people to the hospital. And then one day you can buy that ambulance. And And then you can buy more ambulances and you can ascend up the chain to be the ambulance kingpin. Yeah, it's describing a world that doesn't exist. No. <laughs> so now you're injured. You've had an awakening, not even awakening, more of an evolution of like you realize things are more unjust than you thought they were. Yeah. And you realize, well, if it's this unjust for me, how is it for other people? Now, from this point, and you're highly educated, what happened? Yeah. So I started as an adjunct in the Cal- California State University system in March 2015. And um, I I get hired and fired every year. Yeah, what is an adjunct? All right, so the way that academia is organized, okay? So you have a department. Let's say the department is like the math department, okay? You have professors, and there's three tiers of professor. You have like the full professor who's been there and has tenure. They basically can't get fired, right? There's the associate professor who just got promoted, who just got tenure. And there's the assistant professor who's recently hired and is trying to get tenure. Okay, so like basically you get tenure by publishing articles, 
you get tenure by publishing art because you don't get tenure by being a good teacher. Like if I'm being perfectly frank. Okay. Okay. So you publish enough, right? That they dangle the carrot in front of you. You publish enough, you get, you get tenure and having a tenured position at a university is like the fucking shit. It is the best. You no longer answer to anybody. You basically can't get fired. You spent however many years through your PhD and through your, you know, between five and seven years of assistant professorship, working your fucking ass off to get articles out. And now if you're like the kind of sort of motivated or dedicated or ideological psycho who wants to keep publishing, you keep publishing. And if not, you publish at a slower rate or whatever. Okay. Uh, so, but professorships are specifically for like the quote unquote, like best, of, like the very cream of the crop kind of people. Okay. Um, professorships come with like a built-in teaching load. So it's like, okay, you teach two classes in the spring and two classes in the fall, and that's your teaching load. But they need to fill in the gaps, basically. And like, they don't want to have their hotshot tenured professor teaching like intro to calculus, right? And so what do you do? You hire skilled people who didn't catch on as an assistant professor somewhere, maybe like they're not, they didn't have the research skills to make it. Maybe they had a great research idea and right before they finished their PhD, somebody published it, right? There's like all kinds of reasons that maybe a person doesn't find that this is a professorship. Another huge one is that people are living longer and a tenure job at a university pays a lot of money and gives you great benefits. So if you're like old, you're not going to retire, right? So higher academia over the last, especially over the last like 30, 40 years has just had fewer and fewer and fewer of these tenure track positions. And instead the teaching load gets filled up by adjuncts, the people who are hired on a temporary basis, right? And the way the California State University system works is if you get hired on consecutive semesters, it locks you into a contract. So you're entitled, you're entitled to a benefit structure. You're entitled to basically all, all the benefits and, and rights of a full employee. So the brilliant system that they've come up with is you work for a semester and then you don't work for a semester. And then the, the third semester, right? It's like in every other thing. It's a great, it's really great from an, you know, an organizational standpoint. Here's, there are two things going on. So one is that they've just built up this huge stable of people who are like fighting for table scraps and they don't care as long as the things get filled. Right. And there's no upward mobility of any kind. It could not possibly matter less if I'm good or bad at my job. I'm j I just do it. And the other thing too, is that at least in the Calgary state university system, they, they have this brilliant payment structure, which is we start in August and our pay period is from October to March which is bizarre, but it makes sense when you realize that even if you are hired as an adjunct, you pay into CalPERS, which is the, the California Retirement Fund. And you can't, you can, you have to wait six months to cash out of CalPERS. So you get your last check in March, and then you start again in August, which prevents all the adjuncts from cashing out their mandatory retirement accounts. So like they just dangle all these carrots in front of you and prevent you from basically you know, having a reasonable living. It's like its own microcosm of late stage capitalism. Academia is its own yeah, exactly. micro version of the greater economic project that we have in the US right now. Yeah, I mean, well, like if you track tuition versus the consumer price index, tuition is a lot 
has taken off at a much higher rate. And I can also tell you that real wages have not gone up since the 70s, right? And so college, which at least a part of like the popular narrative is like something you have to do has become increasingly expensive, right? And you're not getting paid more money for, for doing it, right? You, there's no greater payoff than there was before for doing it. And in fact, people have a lot of like obsolete or degrees that they don't even need, right? We have huge shortages of people who are skilled in any kind of physical labor and a bunch of people who are like, you know, know a lot about anthropology. Yeah, higher ed is, is definitely is like a, a perfect picture of late stage capitalism, which is like there are, pe- there are the blood suckers at the top, <laughs> which are just like people who are older and have good jobs and make a lot of money and there's no real reason for them to quit because they don't want to get rid of that, right? And they suck up all these resources. And then you have a whole host of very young, very qualified people who are just brushed aside as expensive. In a certain way, I admire it just because, wow, you probably went through a lot of stages in order to get to that kind of fucked up system. It's like you practiced on lab mice or something. <laughs> yeah. No, it's even like if you teach like a, a summer class, your pay depends on enrollment. Like if it's not full enrollment, you don't get like 100% of what the pay for the course is supposed to be. If it's like 75% enrollment, then you get like 75% of the pay, right? Like your your rights as, as a lecturer in, are few and far between. But it's like, what are you going to do? Complain and then knock it and get fired for real instead of just fake fired every year, you know? You know, kind of like you, my faith in market economics is what made me lose faith in market economics. Because yeah. here's the situation, like with tenure professors. I've heard this too, because I have a lot of friends in academia and I used to think about going into academia. Once you're tenured, like you said, you're set. It's so, it's like impossible to get fired. It's not literally impossible, but practically impossible, right? So you would think they would be the most vocal, like back in the fifties and sixties, the most vocal about politics. They would be the ones fighting for stuff. They would see, you know, adjunct professors below them. And because they're protected, they would like help other people out because they could, because they wouldn't have any disincentives not to. Yeah. So they're protected and they don't do these things. And I'm like, wait, I didn't know that's how the market works. Because once markets, uh, once you've accumulated enough, like this in general, this is the idea of how people thought. Because people were like, well, what if, you know, people have always criticized markets. Like, what if you just become really selfish and you just gain for yourself? And it's like, no, 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 no. What will happen is there's individual rights and individual like pursuits. Okay, I like the sound of that. Okay. Non-collectivism. Okay, sell me on that idea. The non-collectivism. So me as an individual, I could pursue my own. I make sure. I take care of myself and my own. And then once I have enough, I'll share the excess. Trickle down economics. Once the top gets theirs, it trickles down, sharing the excess. This is what you thought how a rational market would work. Like this is what people thought capitalism would work because it was a form of just morality is what, you know, I think Adam Smith thought. Rising tideless all shit. Yeah. <laughs> right. And then you realize, wait, when you lift people up by their bootstraps, the, the bootstraps snap and they just fall. Yeah. And you go up by yourself. So here's an example of now the tenure professors are these like kind of people where they've taken the care of their own. Now they're protected. Now they can share the excess. Not as in like uh, sharing the excess so far as like we don't even have to go that utopian and they have to give up their pay or something. I just mean like speaking up for the little guy. Now they're in a position where they can do that and do not have to fear repercussions. And they don't even do that. Yeah. Well, I mean, I think that's tied up with like, who who do middle class people in this country hate more than anyone? It's not rich people. It's poor people. Right? Like people 
because of the organization society, because of the rhetoric that you were taught from a young age in this country, right? Like the thought is you can ascend, right? And if you haven't ascended, it's your fault. So if you have this belief, right, that you got to where you are as a tenure professor, all because of you, right? And then you look at someone like me and you say, well, you should work harder, you know? And it's like, well, I'm fucking trying, but I can't pay my bills. And I've taught, you know, 33 classes since March 2015 or something like that. It's prosperity gospel bullshit. Yeah, absolutely. People forget that, especially when you mention the middle class, they have more in common with the poor than they do the rich. Of course. You are much more likely to end up poor than end up rich. You are maybe a couple of paychecks away from being evicted, from missing your bills, from being at that point where you start a Kickstarter campaign of like, hey, I can't pay so-and-so. Please contribute to my fund or go fund me. So they never get mad at the people who fired them or who cut their jobs in order to make sure their profits stay the same or even higher. They just get mad at the poor people and say, you're sucking up all the entitlements. And because of food stamps and Section 8 housing, especially in California, they say, well, we can't afford any of these other things. Like, haven't you ever thought of all these companies that are moving all their profits offshore so they don't have to pay taxes? Isn't that a bigger problem? Yeah. I mean, has anybody ever looked at Section 8 housing and been like, this is perfect and good. And everybody who like people are abusing the system to live in this awesome Section 8 housing that they that they fucking love. That's not how it works. Right. Like, I mean, even public housing in this country has like a long and terrible history. Right. Like, I mean, you can really trace housing in this country, at least in its current form, back to like the Depression. Right. Because part of the New Deal was that that uh, the federal government would like insure mortgages. Okay. But like you could only get a mortgage if you were white. Mortgages were only insured for white people. That was like an actual thing. Right. That's that's what redlining was. Okay. Like you had disproportionate, like people came up with these market based solutions and the federal government assisted people to obtain these market based solutions, but only like certain sects of people. Right. And so, like home ownership from gen- is a generational wealth thing, right? Like your home has accrued value in some sense over time. And like you pass that down to the next person or you sell it, right? Like who's like everybody you talk to is right. You is like, you need to buy a house because like, that's the biggest physical asset you could ever have. What the fuck is going to happen in 20 years when baby boomers are trying to sell their houses for what they think the house is worth. And all of us are like, I absolutely cannot buy that house. What are you talking about? Right? So like we've made all these attempts to like privatize social security because like people have all these asset stores, right? But when the assets values are inflated, right? Like the bottom's going to fall out. How do you get away with this scam? And how do you get what you were saying earlier, Paul, about people who are basically making a dollar difference per hour, right? But they're the ones who hate each other the most. The people who make a little bit more than minimum wage, hate the people who are trying to get minimum wage higher, right? And you talk about uh, this hatred for uh, for the poor and this kind of love for the wealthy. And where does that all come from? How do you get away with that con? And there's this thing called political triangulation, right? You triangulate two classes of people that are really similar to each other, and then you just get them to hate each other, right? And so then, because you're hating, uh, hating each other, the person at the top, this other side of the triangle, gets to walk away scot-free. It's kind of like the instigator in school where somebody wants to beat you up. I I, I used to do this because I was a troll <laughs> where I was like, I don't want to get my ass kicked by this guy. I would involve somebody else and then get them to argue and I would just walk away and they would start fighting. And that's basically 
what this is and it works. I mean, this is just like sort of the very light version of why the Japanese were interred in this country in World War II or like the, the Holocaust and things like that, right? This is like the, the very lowest scale of that. This political, the Italian political philosopher, uh, Giorgio Agamben wrote this like seminal series of books called Homo Saker, which are all about this idea of like the othering of people. Like this is how basically those in power maintain power, right? It's through this creation of like the othering of people. And I got to say, I, for the longest time, was just like, well, left politics is the only one that makes sense. And if you believe in right politics, you're just, you're dumb or whatever. And I have come to realize that that is not true, that the Republican strategists and party officials are doing it way better than Democratic officials have for like decades, right? And this is another like part, part of this whole idea of homo sacer is it's the idea of, of endless war. We're always in a war, right? And this has been perfectly implemented since the Bush administration. Is there an easier way to fight an endless war than to say that you're fighting a war on terrorism? The, not even just like you're not even saying a specific kind of terrorism or a specific place, but just like where it's our duty, right, as proponents of freedom, right, as as the foremost neoliberal society in the world, we need to eliminate terrorism, right? And now you've created this constant state of emergency. It's an endless bad guy because yeah. it's no longer a material being, but it's an idea. Yeah. So that idea can keep existing forever. You know, before our problem was we made it against other nation states or another race. But if we put an idea there, then we never have to replace the idea. Yeah. It could just be that idea forever and we have a war forever. And and the other thing too, like that I think is tied up in this and, and uh, Hannah Arendt, who's a, a German philosopher, right, wrote, this series of articles for the New Yorker, which is organized in a book, where she basically went to a Nazi officer's Nuremberg trial and wrote about it. And it just like became incre increasingly clear through her listening to this guy speak and everything where she was like, I mean, this guy, like, it's his fault, but he like very much just got, he was like manipulated and got wrapped up in all of it. Like he just like bought into this system and like committed these terrible acts and terrible things and, and not absolving him of it, of course, but like, I mean, he's very much just like a cog in the machine, yeah. right? Like the this system swallowed him up and now he's in it and he's doing all this stuff, right? And like how like rhetorically, right? The war on like the Trump wall and the war on terror, just like how far apart are they? Without 9-11 and the ensuing war on terror, do you think people have this like fear of the alien invading from the southern border? even though their vehicles are so powerful, as Trump just said. No, it's, it's this othering. It's symbolic. He's symbolizing this fear and hate that you're creating through the othering. And yeah. we're going to do it by fighting terror. or We're going to build a wall. I need to show you we're doing something. It's an easier narrative to build, too. If you look at our pop culture, in pro wrestling, there's always the heel, the yeah. bad guy. Even in comic books and movies, there's always a villain. And then they never get defeated once and for all for good. Batman is always facing Joker. Superman is always facing Lex Luthor. Green Lantern always has Sinestro. And then it's like, if you were really good, you would just wipe this guy out and be like, all right, next. But they're still around because they need to build a narrative and they always have to have a villain to fight. It's interesting you bring up Batman, though, because I think Batman is like is like a right-wing fever dream in many ways. Truly, I mean, he's like 
Or Frank Miller, the guy who kind of revitalized Batman as a hard, like super right winger. Yeah. He wrote Dark Knight Returns, which is like the basically the modern and year one, which are like the two modern Batman stories that really kind of like have shaped this. I mean, like if you even watch the intro to the Batman animated series from the 90s, it's just Batman hunting down guys and beating them up. Like he doesn't even know that they did anything wrong. And moreover, he's not even apprehending them. Like he just knocks them all out, right? Like Batman uses his powers of being insanely rich and white to like weaponize like this vigilante form of justice and just beats people up, right? It's funny because I truly believe that the billionaires just don't have a good enough narrative to sell because Batman and Iron Man are probably the two most famous comic book characters who become movie adaptations and they're both billionaire white dudes and no one hates absolutely yeah no one hates them but they just have a better narrative to spin and sell well think about the kind of the ted talk era right of this neoliberal bullshit of that was another reason i didn't finish my phd is i found out i could just watch like two ted talks and then i'd be an expert in everything you're gonna hack it you just start needing to listen to tim ferris podcast and you're good oh yeah my rubric is only four hours it's dope (laughs) Like before, a long time ago, actually, it wasn't really until Donald Trump that we became aware of billionaires because before they were always kind of try to be hidden, not well known. I don't know if it was because of some old idea of, you know, noblesse and like, this is how it is. And or maybe it was fears of getting kidnapped or whatever. There's evidence for both of that. But Donald Trump was like, no, this is I'm a rich guy and it's cool. And then later on, Silicon Valley took that to the next level. You should be fans of us. We're your heroes. And when that narrative started, right, I'm connecting this back to comic books with Elon Musk, Jeff Bezos, all that shit. They started bringing up Batman and Iron Man. He's like a modern Batman. Yeah. He's like a modern uh, uh, Iron Man, right? So those characters already kind of paved the way that billionaires can be our heroes. I mean, there was that there was that iconic Batman comic where he was interviewed on TV and cried because he doesn't respect the SEC, right? <laughs> I mean, Elon Musk just fills that role perfectly. But I th- also, I mean, to that end, like one of the sort of logical ends of late stage capitalism, right, is the ousting of even like the public intellectual. Public intellectual has been replaced by the public billionaire. Yeah. Like anytime there's any discussion about artificial intelligence, it's not a fucking AI researcher from MIT. It's Elon Musk and Mark Zuckerberg being like, well, I think this about I like artificial intelligence and I don't know anything about it. And Elon Musk doing the same thing. But then Joe Rogan like is like, oh, Elon Musk is talking about this crazy shit. And I want him on my podcast so I can learn about what AI is. Well, even in our world, MMA, right? Yeah. Instead of bringing an actual steroid expert or scientist, yeah. he brings in Jeff Nowitzki, who's an, an executive at UFC, whose basically background is in accounting. Yeah. And it's like, OK, I'm going to bring a corporate guy and he's going to explain the science of steroids. I mean, it makes perfect sense that. Change the metabolites be just in your system forever, right? Pulsing. They're going to pop up sometimes, so not others. Every other term. What I do love about that, like, is basically what became clear about this whole recent John Jones, like, metabolites controversy is it's exceedingly clear that UFC fans did not know that they, like, bombard urine with radiation and thought that they're just, like, like, sifting it or something to see what happens, right? Like, the... No, it's in there because they took some fucking rays and bounced it off of it. And like the density of each thing tells you what's in there or whatever. Yeah. Right. But they're not just like, OK, uh, we're just going to run this P through increasingly fine 
layers of of net or whatever and then this little tiny grain of sand of a grain of sand of a grain of sand pops out and you're like oh my god that's that metabolite well this connects to your previous point about science and the way we perceive it now because like they're learning about this on joe rogan and i think especially mma jujitsu and this young culture of internet consumers who are listening to shit like tim ferris and the ted talks and whatever we kind of bought into this hype that biohacking and all these supplements is based on real science. Yeah. So when uh, they're talking about, you know, oh, th this picogram of this does this, and that's why we got to bust this guy. Yeah. And, and that's why, you know, Tom Lawler has to be out of the UFC or Frank Mir has to be out of the UFC for two years. We think this is based on hard mathematical science because if it wasn't, then all these supplements that we're buying is bullshit and or not maybe necessarily full bullshit, but it's not as proven as we think. And we think, all this health science is real because Joe Rogan told us that. Well, I think that the biohacking thing in particular is like a great example of the real ridiculousness of late stage capitalism, right? Where you're trying to privatize your health. Yeah. Where they're like, okay, yeah, the doctor costs infinity dollars, so you can't go. But if you blend butter into your coffee and drink it every day, like you'll have energy levels that you didn't even know about. And those energy levels will make you work harder and more productively, which will increase your wages, right? Like it's, it, it all feeds into the same thing. It's funny that you bring up fighters because the moment you mentioned that, just like with the Cal State educational system, it's like the UFC where they're all independent contractors and the few who rise to the top never fight for the people at the bottom. Once you become champion, you're not hoping to make sure that your other teammates, even guys in your gym are given a fair shake. It's more yeah. of, well, I made it, so fuck you. As vile as many of the things that he says are like the, the thing that I've always hoped for Conor McGregor is that he would leave the UFC and promote his own fights mm -hmm. because I think that's the best thing that could happen to, to fighters, right? Like that's what happened to boxing. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Like, I mean, if you work for this organization that's has like a money hoarding goblin at the top, right. And you have a very finite amount of time and, resources etc to to make money at it right like I, I would i think the fighters should own the means of producing fights you know like they don't even let guys get like 500 bucks for putting condomdepot.com on their butt anymore right like yeah. it's all you got to wear this reebok uniform and it's weird because most mma people i know fans and even fighters are very libertarian yet yeah <laughs> what's more like collective and fascist than like you can't even show your own individual personality in the clothes you wear to yeah. the ring. You can't even dictate your own sponsors. So going back to your story and now millennial struggles. And for me, being older than Paul, I think you and Paul are the same age. I remember like my first jobs out of college. I used to get like 15 minute breaks. I used to get a lunch break where I could leave my desk. You know, I used to actually get a full hour. I used to only work eight or nine hours a day like that was it yeah and if i worked more than that i got overtime now albeit i'm more gen x so i didn't even get that for that long yeah. but i got it for a while and then i look at people younger than me i'm like these kids are smarter than me did more homework than i'll ever do in my life you know have more degrees than me it's like they get a job right and then they hold on to her for like six months or whatever and then they already get let go because there's layoffs happening yeah it's unfortunate but i've been a victim of that corporate cost-cutting measures of, well, in order to make sure we're profitable, we're just going to let these people go because they're new, they don't have enough experience, or just to make our shareholders happy, we're going to let go of 10% of our staff. And lo and behold, 
who's here under a year, let them go. We haven't invested enough in them. It's okay. We'll make it back by making our current workforce who have been here longer just work a little bit harder. It's cheaper to pay them a little bit more, give them that baker carrot on that stick and just say like, hey, we had to let people like Paul and John and Bob go, but you work a couple extra hours, we'll give you time and a half. And then they just keep going forward. We have a mutual friend, Paul and I, named Steve. And we've probably known Paul since he was in high school. Shout out to Steve. Big up, Steve. So basically, we always kind of joke, but kind of honestly, because we're like, well, he didn't fuck up like us. He's a good student. You know, he didn't go through all the delinquent years that we did. We're like, Paul's going to do all right. Right. And then he graduates high school. He goes to college, graduates dad. He's like got a good head on his shoulders. And we keep thinking, yeah, Paul's going to do better than all of us. Right. We, We kept saying that. Because that's the way it should go. That's what capitalism has taught us. If he has more merit than us, and he's even younger and more energy and more disciplined than us, then he should do better. And then every time we talk to Paul, yeah, you're going to do better. And then six months later, he's like, yeah, I got laid off. (laughs) And then he's like, no, no, but next time, this is your era, Paul. The young, you guys are going to take over. Because you always think as older, the young will replace you in jobs. And then it never happens. I never got replaced. And then it's like, oh, Paul says the same thing again. Yeah, it didn't work out at the last one. We're like, and then after a while, we just say it as a joke, meaning it's not true. You know, it's like, yeah, you're fucked. You were supposed to take over. The world was supposed to be your oyster because you're smart, dedicated, disciplined. You didn't fuck up yet because I've been around longer. I don't keep getting fired yet. You do. Yeah. I mean, it's funny, right? Like the arguably the two most celebrated like economic thinkers of the last couple hundred years are Marx and Keynes. And both of them are like so famous for believing rightfully, right? That the automation of labor is like what is like what will save humanity. Like that, that's like the good life. Kane's vision of the future was like, well, yeah, like nobody will need to work. They'll have so much shit that everybody will just be totally, it'll be dope, right? And now people are terrified of the automation of labor because. You're fighting for table scraps against literally everybody else. And when a robot takes your job, they don't have to pay it, right? And in your case, Paul, like if your company is publicly owned and they don't lay you off, they can get sued by their shareholders. It's their legal imperative, according to the Supreme Court, right? Like it is their legal imperative to maximize profits. So if you're a shareholder in the company and like they're in the red and you say, well, I don't know the $60,000 or whatever you were paying Paul. And I'm going to scoff at that number because what money was getting paid 60K. But like it just, I don't know, put that back into the slush fund. And that's the connection, right? People don't understand that they see Wall Street and they're like, well, that's not Main Street. That's not a real economy, right? And it is now. Maybe it didn't used to be, but now if a company's stock prices keep going down and CEO has all these stock options or whatever, they're like, they see that their price is going down. They're going to be like, no, not only do they owe it, quote unquote, owe it to their shareholders, but even for themselves as a big shareholder, they're like, we need to do cost cutting measures. Right. So that's where Wall Street turns into real layoffs in Main Street. Yeah. And even even not even just Wall Street, but just in like a part of like the rise and now really collapse of tech in many ways. Right. Was like this like. DIY, like we're going to, we're going to get money from people and they'll get a cut, but like, we're doing it our way. And like in 2014 or 2015, I had a job interview to work at a startup, which was billed as Uber for flowers, 
which is fucking dumb because calling a flower shop and having them deliver it is Uber for flowers. But uh, they were like, okay, you have these skills. Sounds great. We're interested. We don't want to pay you, but we can give you some equity. And so like, I mean, that's another thing that people are facing now where they're like, okay, uh, I'll get experience and the like 0.0000001% chance that this small amount of equity turns into like $40,000 at some point in time. And everybody thinks their company is going to be the unicorn. So they get excited about that equity. I got into it with a guy at a party like a few months ago because he works for Bird. And I was like, (laughs) fuck Bird. And he like (laughs) couldn't even comprehend what my problem with it was. And he was like, listen, I get it. Uber's great. I take an Uber to work every day. And I was like, no, (laughs) that's not what I'm saying. Right. Like it's this constant need to privatizing public problem. So many problems can be solved communally. So for people who don't know what Bird is, it's a pay-as-you-go scooter. Scooter, It's an electronic scooter. So a private company dumps a shitload of scooters on Venice Beach. The police don't confiscate those. But a homeless person sleeps in a tent on Venice Beach, and the cops take that immediately. And again, this is part of this, like, we we feed into the idea that ideas are what's going to do it for everyone, right? Like the marketplace of ideas. Bird is going to solve things and all it does is just like leave (laughs) like tipped over scooters in people's yards because some asshole is like, oh, cool, I'm going to ride this bird and I don't have a helmet and it's not really clear if I need to ride it in the street or on a sidewalk, so I'm just going to do both and I'm just going to leave it somewhere. It's a symbol too, right? It's like um, you guys aren't fucked, right? Paul and Christian. You guys just need to invent a startup thing. Oh, yeah. And, and there you go. You're, you're, <laughs> there's your meritocracy, right? This isn't late stage capitalism. You guys are just unactivated startup entrepreneurs. And, and once you just go to the right Tony Robbins self-help shit, and then you find your next great business idea, there you go. I, I'm leasing sidecars for the bird scooters. That's my, that's my plan. I've designed tiny sidecars for a dog <laughs> that attach to the bird scooter, and I'm leasing those to dog owners. What do you guys feel like is your prospects in the future? Like, how do you see the world heading for you guys as you get into now mid thirties and forties? What will that look like for you? <sighs> the fact that you could do everything right and still get fucked is terrifying. Because you're always taught as individuals, if you do everything on the straight and narrow, go to school, get a good job, then everything will magically work out. Where a lot of times that's not true because education is used as that barrier or that paid admission ticket. You need to go to college in order to qualify for a job that pays you 13 an hour. Now, if you took out loans to get to school, which a lot of people do, you're kind of fucked because now you have... 30,000 doesn't seem like a lot, but it's essentially a car. So you're essentially paying for a car every month to pay that off. Yeah, there's $1.4 trillion in student loan debt. It's actually 1.5 now. Oh, it's 1.5 now. Sorry, I blinked. It's 1.6 now. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. So that bubble is terrifying. It's 1.5 trillion. You are one or maybe two graduating classes away from defaulting on that loan, from starting a terrible recession. Who the fuck is paying their student loans off? (laughs) I have loans and I'm paying them off. But the scary thing is when I was laid off in the past, 
the big concern for me is if I get injured, I am fucked. If I don't have Cobra purchase, because Cobra is super expensive. Crazy expensive. And for people who don't know, Cobra is insurance you could purchase at a lower than market price, but still higher than what you would have paid for at an employer. So you're looking at maybe $300, $400 a month, and that's just individual. If you have a family, it's close to $1,000. So when people say medical bankruptcy or I can't afford to pay that, that's usually what they're referring to. So I always thought, okay, I need to take the least amount of measures possible where I could get injured. And even if I did everything right and I got some kind of thyroid issue or something happened where I had to go to a doctor, I'm thinking, how am I going to pay for this? How do you think the future is going to go for you or other millennials like you? it's it's hard to say right like um i think like trump will win in 2020 uh i i think that shit will absolutely go off the rails even more than it already has i think we're on the verge of a terrible terrible economic depression i don't know to what extent the bottom has to fall out for things to really truly change it's hard for me to envision a society that has any amount of like horizontality instead of verticality through the American system as we know it. I mean, the American government, the Constitution is not fundamentally built on the idea that everybody should have access to everything and be treated equally. Like in Federalist Paper Number 10, Madison's like famous thing is like, we don't want tyranny. And by tyranny, I mean like we don't want a minority uh, to or we don't want like any kind of minority to affect any kind of majority and vice versa, right? And that's because the United States was built on the idea that like rich elite land and slave owning guys were going to run all the shit, right? Like, I mean, how can we even pretend that the electoral system in this country is gonna is gonna fix anything, right? When we have this vestige of a system when you had to be a man and own land to vote, that's why people aren't registered at birth to vote. I guess my my answer to that is, well, people who have extreme amounts of power don't want things to change. And the hurdles that they put into the system are what are preventing people from making the changes. So I just I don't think that the change comes from inside the system. When you have a system that is fundamentally set up to exclude people. So when minorities and those who have been oppressed talk about institutional discrimination and racism, this is what they mean. We can communicate in the same language, but if I say I'm not racist because I don't hate black people, so I can't be, but I don't care if you're green or purple, (laughs) but the black person could point to me and say, if you support and don't say anything about the institutions that discriminate against us, where law enforcement can look the other way and disproportionately target us and you're okay with that system, how can I not call you a racist? So I think systems like that have to change in order for any real policy and real effective measures to take place for things to get better. Otherwise, it's just going to be more of the same. Let's say there is a big disaster, depression, economic disaster. Do you think that'll be a chance for a reboot of the system and that's going to be the change? That could be the turning point? If you, if we reflect historically on like where truly leftist movements have taken hold it's not in places that like look like the united states at all it's like typically very agrarian societies that are like under the rule of a a small concentration of people whether it be like 
the the Tsar in Russia or like the fascists installed by the CIA in, in Cuba or wherever else, right? Like, and so I like I I mean I guess I don't have a good answer in the sense that like I think if there is to be some kind of like sweeping truly sweeping change it has to be really bad it not only does it have to be really bad but it there won't really be historical precedent because of like the material conditions of of the united states of our citizenry of really like what optics and interconnectedness and blah 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 like look like in 2020 or 2024 right where like it's easier to organize people now right but like also there's like terrifying death machines everywhere that could just kill you yeah. so Honestly, we're going we're going in one of two directions. And my biggest fear about something like social democracy, right, is that you you pull the you pull the slingshot towards social democracy and then when you let go it snaps back. Right. And so like this is why my like we have historical precedent like in Italy and Germany in the interwar periods where like social democracy tried to take hold and got crushed by fascism. Right. And so that's why like I think that if this if the U.S. is to really sort of materially and structurally change, it will be in a way that is really unlike anything that we've really seen in kind of any recent history. And when we use the term late stage capitalism, it is kind of like this idea that capitalism is kind of self cannibalizing and it's getting to a point where it can't even sustain itself. Yeah. Do you think we're getting to a point where we will see? You know, maybe the thing that almost happened in 09, where they were afraid the whole system would collapse. Yeah. Do you think we might see something like that? I do. I mean, I, I feel like either we like go back to some kind of like boom and bust. Economists call it the business cycle. Marx calls it like the crisis of capitalism. Like we either recover the economy in at all enough via like fiscal policy, like Keynesian fiscal policy to return to some kind of like normalcy in American society, but that would involve like insanely progressive tax rates that are hard to push through right now. Like I really truly don't know what's going to happen. I mean, none of us really know, I guess to say it, but like the, the bottom will fall out soon enough. And I guess the, what happens after the bottom falls out is. So the thing to try to even drag it out even longer is not going to get past so yeah. what other option is there than for something to fall out? Yeah, right. It's like, well, if the if the boat has a hole in it, right, and you're like scooping out water, right, like that that only goes so far. But they're not even going to let you scoop out water. Yeah, anymore. exactly, right. So, like the original, and I'm using that in air quotes, like socialists and Marxist movements, and like the first international thought was that, like the revolution, mm-hmm. and I mean like. The, the capital, right? Like the proper noun, the revolution that was going to depose capitalism was going to be like a, like a Western thing helped along by intellectuals in like industrial England and, and France and like in, in Western Europe, basically like in Western Europe, we were going to like have this workers of the world unite and, and take back everything. Right. But again, because of like the interconnectedness of government and capital and the fact that owning capital gives you power, right? Like there have been a lot of hurdles that have prevented that. So the places where these really strong leftist movements have taken hold, Vietnam, right? Cuba, Russia, these are all like desperately poor agrarian societies. And again, like 
there's no way that we can return to like agrarian society in America, right? Like that's like, there's no, we can't ignore the material conditions of what the world around us looks like. Like we have all this infrastructure, which is crumbling and can't get fixed and buildings like cover the country. And then in places where there are no buildings, there's like, you know, parkland that's not maintained very well anymore. Right. Like I, the honest answer is I, I don't know. We need to do something. And I just, I don't know what it is other than a complete upheaval of, of everything. Well, good luck you guys. Cause I got, you know, I, you got yours. I got mine. I got all my gold stashed away. You're like that tenure professor. You're like oh, I'm on the tenure track. Good luck adjuncts. We're not going to end it up on a upbeat. <laughs> and there ain't no nothing we can't love each other through. What would we do, baby, without a